This is the current federal tax developments for the week of August the 21st, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona here this Sunday afternoon. And we'll be looking at uh, what's gone on this week in the area of taxes. So this week we're looking at some limited relief that's likely coming for beneficial ownership reporting. I wouldn't get too excited here, but it could solve one problem, at least that's reading between the lines on what the title of the, pro of the regulation project is that OIRA will be looking at. We also have to discuss an issue where the IRS is being challenged, and this is actually happening in multiple cases, but on their position where they've been trying to expand their ability to assess self-employment income to even limited partners that are state law limited partners under a state you know, statute that qualify for that purpose. And we'll talk a little bit about that. They're trying to expand the wins they've had with LLCs, LLPs, and the like. And we'll give some pros and cons what's going on, but certainly it's going to be something to watch for if you deal with any partnership returns, and especially if you deal with partnership returns where you have a limited partnership and you're looking at defending limited partners from potential future claims that they owe self-employment tax. Next up, we're going to take on one of the favorite uh, tax planning options your CPA doesn't want you to know about, supposedly, at least according to certain sources on tax TikTok and the like, or even just your neighbors talking with each other, you know, among themselves. And that will be the uh, rent your home to your business uh, for less than 14, for 14 days or less during the year and be able to claim an unlimited deduction for the rent you pay and not have to pick any of, it up, any of it up as income. Well, we'll discover that in fact, while this can work, there is gonna be some rather strict limitations on the amount of income you'll be able to, uh, be able to basically pay rental income and deduction, or on the deduction side, and still have this work. We'll talk about a case where it crashed and burned fairly badly. We're also gonna talk about an IRS advanced memo that states the IRS objections to a marketed trust tax avoidance plan. And th this is kind of interesting. We know we've talked about some other tax avoidance schemes. Well, actually the one we just mentioned here was one where we talk about the rental issue, but this is another one that kind of fits within the mold of the type of schemes we see. And we'll talk about why the IRS objects to it why, in my view, there is no question the IRS is correct on this, because the supposed legal opinions depend upon not worrying terribly about the fact that income has wildly different definitions in different contexts for trust income tax accounting. And by misusing that and just assuming everything is all the same, well, that's how they make it work. And end of the day, it doesn't work. Finally, we're going to talk about an IRS memo that explains if you represent any credit unions or you are the accountant for a credit union, they explain why a credit union can claim the employer retention credit for wages paid in 2021, but not for wages paid in 2020. This is a kind of unique, quirky thing that will impact credit unions, but we'll talk briefly about it. So let's talk first about an issue that came out this week. It's Regulation Project RAN1506-ZA02. The basically OIRA reported receiving this project from Treasury on August the 14th. 
Now, there's not a lot of information about this. All we know is the title of the rule project. We have no copy of the rule. We have no real discussion from Treasury about what they're doing here. We just have this rule. It does mean that OIRA has it. It does mean that normally a few weeks after OIRA looks over a rule and accepts any sort of discussions that people might want to have with them prior to their approval, that we end up seeing it coming out as either a proposed or a final rule. But the title of the project is Beneficial Ownership Information Reporting Deadline Extension for Reporting Companies Created or Registered in 2024. Now, the nature of that to me suggests a probable answer we're going to get. If you remember, under the Corporate Transparency Act, entities that were formed after December 31st of 2023 had to file their initial reports within 30 days after initial formation. Entities that were in existence prior to that date have until January 1st of 2025 to file their initial report. So because of that, to me, it seems one of the likely things that may be coming here is first, uh, probably Treasury or at least FinCEN is not going to be ready on January 1st, 2024 to receive these filings and probably won't even be ready by February 1st of 2024, which would be the first date you would probably, you would need to, if you form something actually on New Year's Day, that should be the date, or actually, I guess even the second would work for this. That, that should be the date on which you're going to have to file the forms, you know, the initial report. And obviously, if their electronic system won't be ready on that date, uh, that's not going to work. My other guess is it does seem a little weird why an entity that's been in place for years and it should be all settled and we could work everything up right now for what the reporting should be, if nothing major changes, which for a lot of our small entities, it wouldn't. Why that is the one that gets till the 1st of January 2025 report, but something brand new filed in 24 has to get it filed in 30 days, which could be many months earlier than the ones that pre already existed. So that may be what's there. We don't know. We do know, though, that this rule says it only affects entities in 24. So we have to assume it won't affect an entity that was created before 24. And that's why I'm suggesting that probably either they'll give you, you know, it's due within 30 days after the entity is formed, or if later, January 1st of 2025, that'll probably be what I would expect here. It's possible, I guess, they could say, well, maybe that 30 days, but the first year will allow it to be 90 days. You know, there could be any sort of relief. We'll have to read it, but be aware, if you've talked about the Corporate Transparency Act, you've taken any course I've given about it, we've talked a lot about the fact that entities formed in 24 will be on a short fuse of having to file their initial report within 30 days. This could give some relief, but again, only for that year. Following 2024, unless there's another change to the rules, in 25, we would suddenly be on the 30-day reporting rule. So, yeah, it's good news, but probably not that significant, is the way I'd kind of phrase it. Next up, we're going to talk about a plaintiff's petition in the case of point 72, Asset Management LP et al. versus Commissioner. It, this petition was filed on August the 11th of 2023. Now, this is an entity that has a general partner that holds a 0.01% interest in the partnership that is a corporation. The rest of the interest is held by the shareholder of the 100% corporation. Now, this is one of those cases where 
You know, th this is as bad as the facts are ever going to get in this situation. And that's probably why the IRS selected it. You know, they're going to have various arguments that may go beyond. So we'd have to see what's going to come up. But the IRS did argue that the shareholder should have received uh, self-employment income on the allocation that came to him as a partner individually via the partnership K-1 for his limited interest, which was the vast majority of the equity of the partnership was his in, in limited interest. The taxpayer claims that, no, that, that's not what should happen. The fight here is over what does limited partner partnership mean in Internal Revenue Code section 1402A13. Now, I've been on, the, I basically committed to this long ago, many, actually back in the early 2000s when the question about what, what should be the proper tax treatment of an LLC. And my statement then, which, you know, we, now we've gotten a, a more generous view, but my statement there was, look, if you're not a limited partnership, by definition, partners pay SE tax on the business income of the partnership. Since an LLC is clearly not a limited partnership, uh, you know, it certainly isn't legally under state law definition, then it would appear everything should be subject to tax. Now, in Rankmeyer and then followed up with Hardy, the tax court has adopted an activity-based test for LLC members. Now, in Rankmeyer, they made it very clear that they were recognizing that when the 1402A13 was added to the Internal Revenue Code, that LLCs did not exist. And they then went through an interpretation saying, well, what Congress meant was you weren't active in the entity. The IRS is trying to ride that line of active, active in the entity to now go back and even go after state law limited partners, assuming that in some form, in this case, probably as president of the corporation that owns the, the general partnership interest, that this shareholder is active. And if we just test the shareholder's activity in the activities of the partnership, well, you know, he's going to be, uh, he's going to essentially be stuck with being subject to SE tax. In essence, even though he is a limited partner per state law, the IRS is trying to argue, well, he's not a limited partner for 1402A13. My problem with that is I still believe when the law was passed, there were limited partnerships. When the law was passed, Congress was very aware what a limited partner was under those various state laws. And you know, Congress chose to link it to that. I don't think back when this was passed in the early 70s that anybody would have suggested that what Congress meant by this was not limited partner by looking at state law, but rather this weird sort of activity-based rule. So my own guess, I think the taxpayer should prevail, but I'm nervous because the fact pattern here is about as bad as you can get. And so I'm wondering if the courts will feel pressured that if they approve this, that that would like give everybody, you know, carte blanche to go find a way to get out of a C-tax if they're willing to form these sort of structures. Uh, and to be honest, probably it only works if we can have a bunch of corporate partners and the like. There's, there's various things that could be messy in this. But in the event, keep your eye on this because it may open up some options. Next up, the Sinopoli case, Sinopoli versus Commissioner. Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2023-105. Decision came down on August the 14th. 
A popular, your accountant doesn't want you to know this or won't tell you this, or your accountant doesn't know this. Your accountant is unaware because accountants only work for the IRS, etc., etc. Uh, type of tax planning that gets popular on tax TikTok, uh, Facebook groups, you know, Reddit, uh, various other things on various Twitter locations, right? Uh, or X, I guess we call it locations these days. Or is this theory of using renting your home to your business, preferably a business that is an entity? Most of them at least realize that renting it to your Schedule C probably isn't going to work. Uh, and hint, no, it wouldn't. But they'll just say, well, you know, like if you have an S corporation or you're in a partnership, that you could then rent your house to your S corporation or partnership, charge whatever rent you want, but make sure you rent it for 14 days or less. And if you do that, you then can claim a full deduction on the S corporation return for the rent you paid. And you would also be able to not pick the amount up in income because this kept secret or not known by account provision is found in the Internal Revenue Code section 280 cap AG. Right at the end of 280A, it's pretty easy to find. 280A relates to business use for home. And that this is a vaguely related to the or to the vacation home rule provision found in 280 cap AG. By the way, 280 cap A has the vacation home rule in it as well. So, in this case, not a, notwithstanding any other provision of this section or section 183, which is the hobby loss rule, if a dwelling unit is used during the tax period by the taxpayer as a residence, and such dwelling unit is actually rented for less than 15 days during the taxable year, then no deductions will be allowed under this chapter because of the rental use of such dwelling. Well, okay, fine. So, we can't claim any deductions. That might seem like bad news, except the income is totally ignored. Now, what's going to be proposed here is, as I said, we are going to simply rent our home to the business, normally for some sort of management meeting or retreat or whatever. So we're going to have we're going to have, you know, 14 days during the year and we're going to come up and charge a rent for that. And the theory is we get the full deduction on the business. And then we turn around and don't pick up any of it on our income tax return. Isn't this wonderful? Now, in this case, we have two physicians. They owned a Planet Fitness franchise held in an S corporation in Louisiana. Right. Now, they, they indicated that they had normally held meetings. And before they started doing this rent the home, they said, well, they'd often hold those meetings in the Planet Fitness building they had you know, or at the hospital, whatever, they would meet and discuss the business activities. Well, at some point they decided, hey, we, we should use our homes, right? So we're going to have a monthly meeting in each shareholder's home. There are two shareholders. So that would say, in essence, two meetings a month. And we're going to pay them rent, uh, at least for some of the months that was based on a the common area square footage available in the house times the per square foot uh, cost of rental space for meetings in the area they were in. So, okay. And when they did this, they came up with a deduction for three years 
of $290,000 for these meetings for the rent. Now, as you may think, that seems like a lot of money to have to be renting for a place for two people, right? There's only two shareholders to meet and discuss the company's business. It would seem that there should be much, 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 much more frugal places to do that. And, you know, places that actually are, have rooms that are designed for such meetings. Turns out the IRS and the judge had a similar thought. As I said, our problem here is not that exclusion. The court never said we're going to count that rental income as income on your 1040. But we're going to get there anyway. Because what the court did say was, we have a bit of a problem here. First thing is, the court notes, whenever a price for something is between related parties, the courts are always going to be highly skeptical of the price negotiated. Because this really isn't an arm's length negotiation between two unrelated parties. It is unlikely, I think we can be very clear, that these doctors would have actually paid any other third party over those three years $290,000 to hold two meetings per month of two people. Probably wouldn't do that. So, you know, they're, they're a bit skeptical. And the expense must meet the ordinary necessary test, and you must provide proof of a business purpose. Okay, so what did the judge say? First thing they noted was that at best, they could only document a single meeting for each month. So even though they were paying both doctors, even though obviously by paying both doctors, that got you 28 meetings, they're saying, first thing is, we can't even find, you know, or I should say, I should say, get, get you 24 meetings. They're saying, look, we can't even find 12. You know, we barely have found 12. There, there are monthly meetings that you're showing somewhat, but you never re really showed us any month when you had more than one meeting. So there's your first problem. Now, the IRS agent had gone out and went to the hotels in the area and found that, on average, if you wanted to rent meeting space that could hold 500 to 1,000 people in it, you could get that from the hotels in the area for $500 a day. It should be pretty clear that a meeting space for 500 people should be more than adequate no matter what these guys were doing in their two-person meeting, right? It's, it's, you know, that's, if it could hold 500 people, it's going to easily accommodate two people to be in that room. So because the IRS proposed the 500, the court went ahead and accepted it, but they're saying that was more than generous. The court implied strongly that they think, why would you buy a 500-person room, right? Most hotels have like small boardroom-type areas where you, you could rent a room that maybe had space for eight people or something of that sort, you know, a little conference room, which would seem to work also just as well. Uh, you don't need all the big space for 500-people room. So in any event, though, he said, we're going to allow that uh, because you only have two owners. And he said, there is no way it required the entire common area space of a home, right? Common area space being essentially the space aside from bathrooms and that sort of personal area. Bedrooms, I should say bedrooms and bathrooms in the bedrooms. So, you know, for all the other living areas, kitchen area, all those other things that are general purpose, 
said, no, you don't need that much space. So we're not going to take your, you know, cost per square foot of the meeting rooms. We're going to take the cost of meeting room. Because all you need is a meeting room. You do not need the entire space that is the home. There's no reason why the business needs that much area. Again, as there's only the two owners, we're just going to kind of live with that. Now, what does this tell us? First thing is, um, you know, be, be careful. There are legitimate ways to make use of this, but they're difficult. And you have to be very, very careful. And certainly, you don't get carte blanche to set the price. Probably, to be honest, uh, the way the judge wrote here, I would think more likely is you'd go to local hotels and see what it would cost to rent their smallest meeting space, their boardrooms, and things like that. And so maybe you can get a couple hundred dollars a month. And while that'll be tax-free, you know, it's, it's, the question is, is it going to be worth the bother? You have to document these meetings, have them in the home, be sure you document you had them there. Uh, you know, is it really going to be worth that level of bother to get this going? And then the other problem is, yeah, it's going to be piddling, right? You, you can't just pull off whatever number you want and you got to keep records, right? We need records to show the beatings actually occurred. And that's something that they weren't really doing. So again, in this case, we actually have a plan that works, but the amount of benefits you can probably get from holding a meeting in there, considering that you could rent meeting space very cheaply from various other parties, it's probably going to be so limited in benefit that no one will care. But, you know, we talked about that. Well, let's go for a bigger tax shelter now. And this one has basically no support whatsoever. This is IRS Advanced Memorandum 2023-006. It was issued on August the 18th. Now, it deals with the, and there might be the term copyrighted in front of this too, and they mention that, we see that sometimes, but otherwise known as the Non-Grant or Irrevocable Complex Discretionary Spendthrift Trust. And this is something promoters are pushing out there as a way to avoid paying tax on, in, on income generated by various assets that you may own, right? They're going to say, and that this will go. Now, these materials are being distributed by attorneys, accountants, enrolled agents, and unlicensed tax advisors. There is a very, uh, you know, active market in trying to rope in tax professionals into going along with programs like these, especially pros, who really don't understand tax planning, you know, who, who basically aren't putting in the work and who just kind of sit back and want to take a marketed program and be able to do a cookie cutter approach and tell their clients, look at all the wonderful taxes we are saving. you." Now, my first kind of takeaway from that is, well, you know, why in the world are they sharing this with you? If it's really something that's so easy, somebody that dumb could do it. Right. If this really worked, why didn't you figure it out? And if you and if you answer that question honestly, that well, I don't know anything about it. Then how do you know this works? Oh, I oh I trust the promoter. Why would you trust the promoter? The promoter is only going to get paid if they do this. 
that's normally the structure here. For instance, they, they, they would be the trustee. They would have something, some structure in here. The promoter is going to get paid only if this goes through. And as we know from a lot of cases, the courts are not going to accept reliance, reasonable reliance on advice, nor do I expect the IRS to accept that you reasonably relied upon the advice of the promoter when preparing the individual tax return. But hey, nevertheless, that's where we stand and that's how these things run. Now, this claims to be a magic system that will eliminate tax on income generated by various assets by first selling those assets to the trust, right? And then having it pay out income that we will treat as corpus and magically that will cause the income to disappear from anyone's tax return. And that magic has apparently been overlooked by tax professionals for decades. It was sitting right in front of our eyes and we missed it. Or we didn't. And reality is we didn't miss it. Rather, this is just a lot of smoke and mirrors. We're playing magic here. This is a magic act. You know, the old Wizard of Oz, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. This is where we're going to go. We're going to find out that they start giving all of these references that sound authoritative, but they absolutely don't want you looking beyond the exact thing they cite. Because if you did, especially the key section that they rely most on for this thing, if you just kept reading, reading to the next subsection, you'd have gotten your clue as to what's wrong with this whole thing. Okay, let's talk about the programs. And the first thing we have to talk about here is something I taught a course on income taxation of trusts and estates on Friday. It actually was the last course in person at the Arizona Society of CPAs Learning Center they've been in for a number of years. Uh, the lease is up. The tenant, or I should say the landlord, wants to redevelop the building into, I believe, uh, multifamily housing. It is a rumor I've heard from various people. Uh, if that's whatever the case is, though, it's pretty obvious they're cleaning out the building because they have virtually no tenants left. And yeah, they're not renewing leases. So anyway, they, they've got to clear out here. Their, their lease is over. They will be in a new location by the middle of September. But in that course, I dealt with the types of income and the definition. Be very careful. As 643B makes clear, there are multiple references and types of income. And there is a wildly different type of income that is not taxable income, gross income, anything of that sort, wildly different whenever in those provisions of the code, it just refers to income, right? Income without a modifier in the code, or the IRS will call it accounting income. You'll find it in their various texts. You'll find it in the publications. You'll find it in the instructions. Accounting income simply means the same thing as 643B tells us, the income without a modifier means. Income without a modifier refers to income calculated under your state's Uniform Principle and Income Act as modified by the trust document. And that's generally going to be true. So when your trust document says we're going to pay out income to the surviving spouse for life, what they are referring to, what those documents refer to, is the legal definition of income. And that definition of income is outlined in your Uniform Principal Income Act, which gives us the default treatments and allows a trust to write its own rules for anything, 
but rarely, rarely does a trust actually write its own rules. Or if it does, it only does a one or two limited couple of rules it will write its own rules for. But that income has nothing directly to do with taxes except if you have a simple trust. Remember, a simple trust requires its income to be distributed currently and you have no distributions in excess of that income and you have effectively no charitable beneficiaries. So in that case, you're a simple trust this year. Well, your income distribution deduction on schedule on form 1041 is going to be limited to the amount that you're required to pay out, which is the income of the trust computed under the Principal and Income Act, or unless there are modifications in your trust document to change various steps in that, or distributable net income, right? Whichever one of the two is lower. Now, DNI serves, DNI is going to come up in the second but it's involved here. So this talks about income and income under the Uniform Principal Income Act, a trust accounting always boils down to whether a receipt represents an item of principal or income. It's a little broader than that because when you receive an asset, that's considered to be principal. So there are other cases, but normally it's just a pure cash basis structure, right? And everything goes into principal and income. And really that's used to classify the assets you're still holding. Are you holding any assets on the balance sheet that represent income? Based which income goes to the income interest holder. It may be a mandatory interest or maybe the trustee has discretion, but they're only allowed to send income to this one party at their discretion. Gross income is a tax definition. Section 61 tells us income from all sources right, except as otherwise provided in the law, is considered to be gross income for income tax purposes, becoming our starting point. Taxable income is defined also in the code, this time it's section 63. Generally, taxable income will be gross income, removing any exclusions you may find, like the 108 exclusion for cancellation of debt. If you don't, you know, it basically, if you're insolvent, it's a charge in bankruptcy, etc., that'd be exclusion. But then that's gross income reduced by deductions specifically allowed by the code. Okay, that's what taxable income is. Now, again, gross income and taxable income have no ties whatsoever to income, right? Just unmodified income or what the IRS calls accounting income. Finally, there is distributable net income. DNI is a modified version of accounting income. I say a modified version of taxable income. And that's used to determine what's the most that you could claim as a distribution deduction. What is income that will be deemed distributed by the code as being part of, you know, whatever the distribution will be allowed. What is that number? And then we simply compare it to the amount of actual distributions or required distributions and your income distribution deduction will be the lesser of those two. But if something is not taxed to the beneficiaries, right? It's going to end up being taxed to the trust. So DNI really serves primarily as a mechanism that determines whether we keep the income in the, whether we have to keep some income in the trust and treat that as taxed at the trust level at those high brackets, or whether it will be deemed to go out to the beneficiary and will be able to be taxed at the beneficiary's level. So that's what DNI is. Those are the purposes are these. 
as I note, these are not the same. But this particular uh, promotion is going to play on the fact that a lot of people in tax have no idea about what these differences are, what's going on here. Why? Because I don't know about you, but I had absolutely zero training in trust in my undergraduate tax courses, right? I, I, I had zero, zero trust training. And I was talking with uh, someone, you know, who formerly used to set up programs, including master in tax program. And he admitted that even with a master's in tax program, it's very likely you'll, you'll get through it with virtually no discussion of trust and trust tax accounting. So essentially, we end up doing 1041s, but we have no clue how to do them because we've never had the actual formal training. You've had formal training, most likely, in how to do an individual return uh, before you got out of college. And you had formal training on doing a corporate return before you got out of college. And maybe even to a certain extent, a partnership or S-corp return were mentioned. But what was never mentioned was a trust return, the 1041. That's where we get into trouble. Now, what they claim is that a trustee can designate any income as an extraordinary, an extraordinary dividend. And this is covered by Section 643A4, which states that if the trustee uh, basically properly allocates an extraordinary dividend to corpus, right, then it will be excluded from DNI. Now, they're going to use that to say, Oh, that means it's not taxable. No, that's not what it means. Right? And you know, if you look at 643A itself, the very beginning, it tells you that flat out. It is only used to divide the income between that which the beneficiaries will pick up based on distributions they've received and that which the trust has to pay tax on at the trust level. That is the entire purpose of DNI. It absolutely does not determine if a particular item is taxable, meaning that nobody will pay the tax on, you know, that in essence, nobody pays tax on this particular item because it's not taxable. But again, they don't pay much attention to that. Uh, such items and capital gain allocable to corpus are excluded from DNI under 643A, right? Then they take, as I said, the absolutely unsupported by any authority provision that because it's not in DNI, it's not taxed to anyone. That is flat out wrong. That is so wrong. Anybody with a background in trust will immediately say, that's not how it works. It's not anywhere like it works. That is a total misunderstanding of trust income concepts. Trust income and taxable and tax income concepts that are related to trust. Those are very, very different concepts. Now, honestly, what this tells us is either the promoter knows he's lying, but figures he can bluff you into not paying any attention, or the uh, basically, or the or basically the the promoter is an idiot and has no clue how trusts work. Neither one is a very good sign for going out there and just blindly following their advice. Right? It's a problem either way. At this point, all the wheels come off. Right? Your, your client's position has just fallen apart. I make a reference on the slide uh, 
If you're an F1 fan, you may remember a famous picture of Sebastian Buemi at the 2012 F, uh, 2010 uh, Formula One Chinese Grand Prix where he's driving down a straight. He goes to hit the brakes because there's a corner coming up, right? And hey, race car, standard family sedan, you're approaching a, you know, a sharp turn. You slow down, right? You got to hit the brakes. As he hit the brakes, literally both front tires, both front, not tires, just tires, wheels, both front wheels just go away entirely. They come off, they come flying off the car and just go way, wide off to the sides. And uh, Sebastian has a problem because last time I checked, there really was nothing in the manual about what do you do about steering when both tires, when both wheels decided to decide to separate themselves from the car. Uh, luckily, Sebastian was not injured. Uh, luckily, there was a nice big gravel trap in front of him. So it got him, you know, everything worked fine for Sebastian. But for your client, let's imagine that rather that nice big open gravel trap that he ran into and, you know, slowly came to a stop, rather than that, and he did have a little bit of barrier on one side that he scraped along, Rather, there is an absolute concrete wall right there at the corner. And that's what your client's going to crash into. Uh, by the way, if you want to see Sebastian Buemi's 2020, 2010 F1 Chinese Grand Prix, I have a link in the materials you can download. Actually, we'll let you go watch that. I can't put it on here because of rights, but F1 has it up there. Formula One has, has it available. They still have it on YouTube. Then go watch it. And it is, it is interesting to watch. And you have to kind of say, I wonder what, what, you know, it's like, oh man, I don't even want to think about what would happen going 25 miles an hour if I put the brakes on my car and the wheel, and, you know, and both wheels just decided to separate at that instant and go bye. You know, bye bye. We're, we're gone. Yeah, you know, it, it's like, okay. Uh, yeah, there, there, there really was no, no, no driver's training for that one. I, I don't remember in driver's ed, they ever told us what, what to do if both wheels go off, the front wheels disappear. Now, this memo notes that 643A and B both indicate taxable income is not the same as DNI. And DNI does not determine taxable income. Whether something is or isn't in DNI, it does not determine whether something is taxable. It merely serves on a limit on the deduction where the trust can take part of its net income and have it be picked up by the beneficiaries. So all it does is determine where we're going to pick up this income, but not whether somebody's going to pick it up. Somebody's picking it up and paying tax on it, right? This is a clear, clear hope that you don't know what you're doing and you'll accept this, right? That's how it works. Now, you know, the income doesn't up tax for the beneficiaries. It's going to be the trust itself that pays the tax, right? That's going to be the key. So the IRS tells agents to make sure if they come across something like this, and by the way, as I said, that's a nice long title, but sometimes you put the word copyright in front of that. That sounds even better. So, you know, we have that, but as they said, the IRS said, they're, they're not sure, but it seems like all that means is the actual plan document itself. Somebody's filed for a copyright on it, but yeah. So do with what you wish. But the trust, you know, make sure the trust pays income on any sums that were excluded from DNI. You know, don't let them disappear and deny any deduction from income claimed due to the fact that the trustee treated something as corpus. In essence, when they treat as corpus, that results more that results in a denied deduction 
if anything, to the trustee or to the trust, not somehow a, you know, we get an extra deduction. Quite a few of the packages sent out with this will inform the uh, person that's, you know, that, that decided to buy this off the shelf tax planning package that, that they should, you know, put this on the 1041 as a miscellaneous deduction, you know, general purpose deduction above the line with some sort of note that it represents, you know, this, this particular exclusion cross-referencing 643. And it's like, no, that, no, don't, don't allow that. The problem is, of course, all of this and the legal opinion that tells you that this, you know, how wonderful this is, they all, they all really reference real sections and they reference real things. You know, what they're saying is correct as far as it goes when it's quoting from the law. But the implications of what they're quoting are not what they either tell you it is, if they actually are going to put straight up lie in the document, or I found more often they will very, very specifically word it so you're the one that jumps to the conclusion that that means it's not taxable. Right? They will never say that so that when you come back and try to sue them, they'll say, well, you know, I never said it wasn't taxable. You know, read the document. So be careful. They, they want you to make the jump. Now, I wanted to review because we've seen a couple of these now. Remember, we had the crazy installment sale program. The IRS wants to add list transaction. Now we have this one. And we had the, you know, the pay, pay the rent to your business. These type of scams always come out, you know, and have some sim very similar characteristics. One of them, which is, to be totally honest, is they run this thing using this recipe until such time as actual enforcement efforts stop, start, and then they run off and find the next thing. So, but there is a recipe here that they're going to use for every one of these. And I've been in practice now since 1982. I have seen so many of these come and go that I, I know as soon as something like this happens, it's like, I, you know, I'll tell the client, I can research this and I can look into it, but I'll be honest, I've never seen anything like this work. And I guarantee you, you're going to pay for every hour I spend doing this. And I am almost certainly going to come back and tell you, no, it doesn't work. Or probably doesn't work. And certainly I won't tell you there is, you know, there, there's even a reasonable basis for this position. And I'm certainly not signing a return with an audit. So if you want to go down that path and pay me for that, and I do need a retainer if you're going to, uh, might be best just accept it doesn't work. Because it almost certainly doesn't, right? You'd be better off. Now, what the scammer will do is grab some obscure provision of the IRC that the scammer is sure many advisors aren't fully up to speed on. So trust income is an obvious thing that people don't understand because uh, most of us have had no little or no training in trust accounting. And use that knowing that, you know, we, we, can, we, we can basically now use confusion over that and not be at much of a risk that any of our marks or the Mark's advisors, and maybe the, you know, and sometimes the CPA and attorney or the Mark itself trying to get them to market this to their clients, that they're not going to be able to recognize that this is garbage, right? That none of this holds water as soon as you realize where to look. And as I said, anybody with a trust background would immediately go, that doesn't work. And it doesn't work and would even know where to go look to see why it doesn't work. But since most people don't have training in trust, 
they have no idea where to look. They have no idea what to do. So they're being spoon fed by the promoter, this supposed legal opinion, right? Um, they may also put a non-disclosure agreement on the document to prevent uh, the party, any taxpayer consults from seeking assistance. So they'll give it to the taxpayer. They'll, they'll say, well, you know, yeah, here it is. Well, I, I got to run this by my tax guy. We're saying, well, we can only let you do that because this is proprietary. If your tax guy signs an agreement that he or she will not disclose this to anybody else, right? So basically set that up and try to limit. It's also done that way, to be totally honest. Well, I made a little bit of fun there of social media and you know some of the tax scams we have there. I want to be very clear that also on many of the social media sites, there are serious tax discussions. And if those people got a hold of this, it would take about two minutes to rip it to shreds, right? So that's also a reason why we don't want it being passed around in general. Now they'll claim it's because, oh no, these guys will rip us off and they just do it on their own. Yeah, don't worry. I would not rip them off. I would not do it on my own because I wouldn't do it at all. I've yet to seen, see, to be totally honest, okay, maybe you can show me one. I'm sure one exists somewhere, but I just have never seen it. I have never seen a tax planning program that came with this whole non-disclosure agreement that did not seem to exist primarily to protect the plan from scrutiny by skeptical advisors. That seemed to be its, or I should say competent advisors who would rip it to shreds. Right? It's just like, it's convenient. Yes, I know you might, you say you spent all this time working on this and you'd be ripped off. Well, maybe you would by other scammers who want to rip you off. Uh, but, you know, that's not the main reason. It's just a helpful side effect. Yeah, that's there. But your main reason is to keep people from, you know, doing that sort of thing. It's kind of like, you know, Apple's paying out their, uh, their awards now for the lawsuits because it was discovered that they slowed down iPhones generally. When a new iPhone came out, they would slow down a lot of them uh, with new versions of iOS. Uh, the theory being that, well, oh, my phone's so slow. There's a brand fancy new iPhone. I'll go buy that. Well, you know, Apple claims it was being done to prevent the batteries from, you know, from people from having their phones shut down as the batteries got overstressed, as it got older, etc. But they never told anybody they were doing that. And it did have the wonderful side effect of getting people to decide their phones must be too old now and going out and spending these days up to nearly $2,000 on their new iPhone. So yeah, again, it, it just has a nice side effect. I happen to believe, and I'm, I'm a cynic here, and I do buy Apple products, but I'm a cynic and I happen to believe that far too often we see these things Apple does that just have a really nice economic benefit for Apple that I happen to believe that's really the goal. They find things with economic benefit and then they try to wrap some high sounding theory around it. Well, here we're going to try to wrap this whole theory around it of saying, oh no, we can't show it to anybody to protect our commercial interest. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that's not really the point. The tax scam textbook, as we said, the tax advantage of the advisor's imposter syndrome comes into play. 
if the mark does, because they're going to say you should seek your tax advice, etc., they'll, they'll always, you know, and then they're going to claim with liability, well, it's the tax advisor's fault. They're going to go after the imposter syndrome that many of us have. And there are two ways people react to imposter syndrome, right? That, that feeling deep down that I don't really know this, right? I don't know I'm really competent. Well, there are two ways that people react to this. One way is to be very meek and to simply assume the expert must be right. Look, I'm not worthy. I, I can't handle this. I don't know what I'm doing in this area. You know, I, I, I can't even try in this area. So I'm just going to assume that they're right because they have this nice, fancy legal opinion. And man, if, if I say it doesn't work, I'm going to be arguing with their attorney and oh, no. So that idea, which by the way, will not help you at all if you get sued, right? Because again, it was given to you for review. You just say it works because that seems to you like the way to get out of this doesn't work. The other side is the false bravado approach. Well, if, if you're concerned that you're an imposter, you can't let anybody know that because that would be weak and they shouldn't use you and you don't want to appear weak. So you appear strong by just whatever they come up with, you know, that, hey, look, it also gives this big tax advantage. Oh yeah, that's exactly how it works. It's totally right, right? So either way, wanting to seem strong, wanting to not appear overconfident, yeah, either way you react to imposter syndrome, they're going to use that against you to get you to buy in on this program and not tell your client to stop. You need to be assertive and you need to suggest this and you need to tell them, look, if there is a non-disclosure agreement and we can't get this sent to somebody who has expertise in the field, that in and of itself to me means you don't do this, right? If they're that afraid of scrutiny, if they're that afraid of somebody looking at it, um, the reason 99 times out of 100 is it doesn't work. That's the reason for the major fear. Finally, let's talk about the issues coming up here with the employee retention tax credit. And this deals with credit unions. And this is unique and it's quick, but credit unions can claim the employee retention credit on 2021, but not 2020 wages if they otherwise qualify. This is Chief Counsel Advice 2023-33001, issued on August 18th. Now, the IRS issued a specialized ruling dealing with credit unions and the employee retention tax credit. In the 2020 CARES Act, the original CARES Act version of the employee retention tax credit, and even the version that was modified at the end of the year, retroactively for 2020, it has a provision that bars any instrumentality of a government from receiving the ERC. The IRS has in this, in this advice an analysis that says, look, credit unions meet the test as an instrumentality of the U.S. government under Revenue Ruling 57-128 and the fact that they're established with the protection of federal law under federal statutes create credit unions. That's where they've come from. So they override any state regulation. Essentially, they are now credit unions. They're a federal entity. Because of that, they're an instrumentality of the federal government. And because of that, they could get no employee retention credit for 2020. However, at the end of 2020, 
we ended up getting the Taxpayer Certainty and Disaster Tax Relief Act of 2020, along with a number of others in the year-end package, right? Uh, that made a revision of the CARES Act. It extended the CARES Act into 21. The new 21 version of the CARES Act picked up basically the mods they made to the 2020 version, which is allow people that took PPP loans to take it out now, you know, expand the number of expenses that will qualify for the PPP, so which also has an indirect impact on the ERC. But then they also made other modifications that only applied beginning in 21. And that included a rule that said, entities described in IRC Section 501c1 that are exempt under Section 501a from tax can receive the ERC for quarter one and quarter two. They did not make this apply retroactively to 20, but it did apply to the first and second quarter. Don't ask me why, they just did it. That's how they did it. Credit unions are entities that are described in IRC Section 501c1 and that are exempt from tax under 501a. Okay, Credit unions meet those requirements, so they're able to claim the ERC for quarter one and quarter two of 2021. Then Congress came along and passed the American Rescue Plan Act that codified the COVID ERC, now finally put it into a revenue code for the first time, and extended it to the third and fourth quarter with this same revision. Now, while eventually the fourth quarter version was modified so only a recovery startup business could get it, a credit union could be a recovery startup business. And so if, it, if a credit union otherwise qualifies based on full partial suspension, reduction in revenue for the third quarter, then it can you know, claim it from those wages in quarter three. If it's a recovery startup business, it could claim it on wages paid in quarter four up to $50,000 worth of credit because that's how the law works there. So if you have credit unions you work with, if you have credit unions that, you know, or maybe your clients, maybe you work for a credit union and you work with them in a tax department, uh, you know, this is how this works. Or payroll department, this is how these work. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of August the 21st, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. I'm sitting here in Phoenix. We're watching to see if we get any sort of rain. I know that the hurricane is running to the west of us through Southern California. But by the way, I know it says it hits Arizona, which it is in the far west along the Colorado River, uh, but it doesn't end up coming near Phoenix. So we're, we're getting clouds thrown off from it. We're getting you know moisture thrown off from it, but we're not getting the hurricane. So it may impact Vegas a bit more. It may impact Kingman. You know, that, that's more up in the area it's going. It's going more up the Colorado River, which we had one a few years ago that uh, came in the Gulf of California and actually went up the Colorado River. And we thought it, we thought it was going to turn toward Phoenix, never did. It went and cloud, clobbered Vegas. So we looked to have the same issue here. Uh, remember, I do, uh, you can send me email, at, email questions, I should say, at edzollarsatcurrentfulltaxfoundless.com. I do follow the Connect sites for the Arizona Minnesota, New Jersey, and Washington Society CPAs. Oh, and Illinois, I should say. And as well, uh, I also keep an eye on the discussion group hosted by the Idaho Society of CPAs. So if you're a member of one of those societies, you can go ahead and post something. If I see something I think I'd help with, I'll try to reply. Otherwise, we will see you here next week as we get to the last week in August. Can you believe we're getting there? We're going to be coming up close to the first drop-dead deadline for pass-throughs. We are within a month of that day now. Well, within a month of that day now.
So make sure your partnerships and S-Corps are getting ready. But we'll talk to you next week with more current federal tax developments.